So, Reverend Matthew and I. She's uh, going to stand. I have to stand to it. Well, I, I just need everyone to be able to see me, so I want to make sure you can see me. That's why I'm standing. You can sit down. All right, I'll sit down. <laughs> have been collaborating now for several years. Uh, we um, were part of the Woodstock Interfaith Council, where we've done and we'll have on Monday night, November 25th, our Interfaith Annual Thanksgiving service. That'll be at uh, uh, Christ Lutheran Church. And we've done other things together in the community. But we also got excited and taught a class, now it's several years ago, yeah. called uh, Judaism and Christianity, Shared Origins, Different Paths. And that was a, um, that was revelatory for me. That was an amazing exploration. Some of you were there. Uh, and then the next year, we thought, let's include an Islamic teacher. And we did the Heart of Mysticism in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity with Karuna and with um, uh, Rabia, Rabia Gentile. And uh, that was an amazing exploration. And then last year, we thought, let's experience each other's worship services. So this past May, um, St. Gregory's was invited to our synagogue for Shabbat services, where Matthew preached on the Torah portion. And then we went the next day to St. Gregory's, where I got to preach on the scriptural passage. So we've been working our way towards knowing each other. Uh, and so then we thought, what should we do now? And, well, let's study the Gospels together. As from the, and look at it from the Christian, a Christian, and from a Jewish, I should say, perspective, and see how what we get out of that cross-fertilization. Um, now, so I said I wanted to do that. Speaking as a rabbi, but also as a Jew, it's like the Gospels. Are you kidding? <laughs> I don't know how you were raised. <laughs> um, I told Jonathan he would do that, except he wouldn't do that. I won't do that. <laughs> I thought I could hold up a bagel or something. <laughs> I never went to church as a kid. Some of us did. But I didn't. I was growing up in a very contained Jewish community, though I lived in the suburbs. And churches was something that's like, that's, that's not me. Now why? Because we're going to be studying the Gospels. The Gospels and the story of Jesus have been used as a bludgeon against the Jews for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Uh, we're the bad guys. It's an excuse to malign us to kill us, to blame us, to, you know, it's like, whatever, right? Right. Christian anti-Semitism is, uh, uh, is real. It's as real as can be. And as dangerous and as deadly and as demeaning as it can be. Not only that, growing up until this very day, I've been told that if I don't accept Jesus, I'm going to hell, right? So why, 
in God's name what I want to do. <laughs> well, because that's only part of the story. There's a whole huge swath of Christians who aren't interested in perpetuating that, but rather interested in finding out what makes each other tick. And what we learned in our course originally about Jewish, Judaism and Christianity shared origins is that they're not, only, they, they are, they're not only shared origins, they're the same origins, okay? We're siblings, the same origins, so that as we will be, in the way we'll be studying the Gospels, we want to remember that Jesus was speaking to, teaching, preaching to, prophesying to a Jewish community as a Jew. Um, and so if I can wade through and peel apart and get past all of my resistance to this, there's a world of, our curiosity can come alive, right? Beyond fear is, can be curiosity instead. And this, fortunately, is a community where we are safe to explore all that. Right? We know that no one in this room is interested in us having to be like them, right? Um, and that's the ethos of tolerance that we cherish. Uh, and so that creates an opening, even among Christians and Jews, to look at these sacred texts freshly, through fresh eyes, through new eyes. Uh, and so, um, uh, so I wanted to say that all to acknowledge my well-earned resistance to studying the Christian Bible, which has been overpowered by my curiosity <laughs> and my interest in how it will enrich my understanding of first century Judaism also. Uh, and so um, I've been reading and preparing with books that Matthew has recommended to me. And uh, yes. um, uh, so I'm ready to go. So I wanted to bring you up to at least to the, the doorway of where I am on this. I'm very excited and eager to continue now. So I wanted to know what you wanted to say to frame things. Oh, what to frame things? Well, it's been just the journey of these last five years um, between our two communities has been so enriching and enlivening and deepening for my own religious practice and observance, for my understanding of my own tradition. Um, and we've talked over the years about uh, approaching things in the spirit of interspirituality and I thought I might just reframe that word again for those of you who might have not been here when we've used it before. Um, it's a new word that was coined in the late 90s by a man named Wayne Teasdale. Yeah, tell people what interfaith, I'm, you'll do that. I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, so so this, this word um, was coined in the late 90s by this guy Wayne Teasdale, who was a, a lay monk within the Roman Catholic Church. And he intended it as um, an alternative to the word interfaith, or the word interreligious that we're more familiar with. And he, he said that he saw interfaith work and dialogue as being the dialogue that had been happening for the last 50 years or 100 years since globalization really got underway uh, between people of goodwill across religious traditions who said, you know, let's get to know our neighbor. Let's step over our old boundaries and, and get to know each other. And he said that it's a dialogue that happened mostly at the, the social level um, where we say, well, we'll have an interfaith dinner, 
and we'll sit down and you tell me what you believe and I'll tell you what I believe and then maybe we'll build a Habitat for Humanity house together, you know? And it's that sort of goodwill social level. Um, and um, interreligious dialogue, you could see as being maybe the dialogue happening more at the academic and intellectual levels um, where we're really kind of pulling things apart in an intellectual way. And he said, interspiritual dialogue was a new step in dialogue that we were being invited into. And he said, it's the dialogue that happens at the level of uh, experience and the sharing of sp interior spiritual resources across traditions. Um, and that the question begins to shift from what do you believe, which might be an interfaith question, to how do you pray? How do you practice? How do you experience the holy? How do you encounter the sacred? Um, and then an invitation to share those experiences. So we're meeting at a really vulnerable level of, of sharing the treasures and resources of our traditions in a new way. Um, and so we've talked about engaging our traditions at that level, where we're, it's not about trying to convert anyone, it's not about trying to convince anyone of anything, but about sharing our great treasures, the wealth of our traditions. And what we realize is that this guy Jesus, uh, he's a treasure that was produced by Judaism, not by Christianity, and that he's seemingly been owned exclusively by Christianity, but there's a great gifting that can happen in this interspiritual climate we live in now, where Jesus can be really enriched for Christians by an encounter with Judaism, where you actually understand him on his own terms, um, and he can be a gift back to Judaism, in which he lived and died, um, that he was uh, a movement founder within the Jewish tradition, and he never left that tradition. Um, and so Jews can celebrate this treasure of Jesus without becoming a Jew for Jesus or a Christian, and Christians can appreciate and celebrate Jesus' Jewishness. Um, so it's a great time of gifting back and forth across our traditions um, where we can come to see Jesus as a shared treasure um, that, that belongs not just to Christianity and not just to Judaism, but he's one of the shared spiritual treasures of the human family as is Moses, as is the Buddha, that these are great um, human treasures. Um, so we wanted to see what would happen if we approached Jesus in that way, and how might both of us be enlightened um, by each other's traditions as we, we angle in on Jesus from these two perspectives and these two histories. Um, so it seems like a, an exciting let's try and it. challenging <laughs> idea. So let's give it a try. Let's try it. Um, and I'm going to repeat uh, that, oh, thanks, Diane. <laughs> Great. I'm, I'm going to repeat that for each of us, this is a loaded subject. Um, because, just mention Jews for Jesus, for example, and I'm going to continue to conceptualize. Uh, to contextualize, I mean. Uh, starting in the 70s, when there were all kinds of spiritual revivals going on, uh, and Jews were exploring 
you know, the baby boomers were exploring everything from Hinduism to Buddhism to uh, every imaginable spiritual uh, 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 path, in addition to that being a time of Jewish spiritual renewal and revival that started in the 60s and 70s, um, Jews started exploring uh, Jesus, too. And some Jews, very sincerely, came to Jesus with this new idea that they could, you don't have to give up Judaism in order to embrace Jesus, right? You, Jesus could, in classic Christian idea, complete you as a Jew, right? So the problem with Jews... I'm already squirming just listening to you talk about it. <laughs> well, this is why I have to say all this out loud. I know. I have to say all this out loud. Right. <laughs> I have to say all of this out loud for our benefit yes. so that we can then enter this in the spirit where we intended to be. But, I've, 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 but as a Jewish leader, I've been dealing with the Jews for Jesus for my entire career. And um, uh, the Jews for Jesus, sincere as they were, were, became an incredible opportunity for Christian proselytizers to get at the Jews a different way. And so Jews for Jesus got a lot of funding from Christian missionary groups saying, ah, now we can tell Jews that they can still be Jewish and still have Jesus, right? And so in the battle for people's souls, or whatever the hell that is, um, uh, in the scoring points, in the heavenly whatever it is, um, uh, talking about Jews and Jesus, we just, just, I want to put it all on the table so that when you notice, if you feel yourself being resistant to this exploration, I understand, right? I really understand. And you're obviously all here because you're interested. And so am I. But I wanted to say that as well. <sighs> that, it's, that, that it's not a level playing field. Um, and, uh, but we're not interested in any of that stuff. That's not the exploration we're interested in. I'm interested in studying the Gospels. They're these documents produced by Jews in the first century, mostly in the land of Palestine, of Judea. It wasn't called Palestine until uh, the second century. Um, in the land of Judea, uh, by Jews who thought of themselves as Jews and who were inspired by this visionary teacher that had awakened them and inspired their soul, who was a Jew. So how can we, so, so I'm just so interested in reclaiming this in whatever that way that means and in understanding it better and uh, in studying it together. The other thing that gets to happen, because, because for so many centuries Christianity and Judaism have been separate path. Um, a lot of times when one studies the Christian Bible, the New Testament, one, most of the time, one doesn't have the context of the Jewish world it emerged from. Mm -hmm. And that becomes fascinating. When Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son, it's like, what's the Jewish context? Oh, even better, of the Good Samaritan. When Jesus what is the context? Who is a Samaritan? What does it mean in the first century that a, a, a Levite and a 
priest walked by. But the, what is that? When you study that parable in historical and cultural context, it gets so much deeper and means so much more than how it might come to be interpreted in a two-dimensional way. So we're going to be getting to all that kind of stuff. And we're going to be using, as, as is always so helpful in classes together, the text is going to be our anchor. We will hand out the text. If you have a Bible, if you have a, a, a bring it, okay? Because we don't have, we have enough of the um, five books of Moses, which we study from all the time, but we don't have enough of the four Gospels. Of the four Gospels <laughs> here at the synagogue. So we'll be photocopying, we'll be photocopying key pages of text, and the text after this class, which is all going to be framing, after that, we're going to be using text. We're going to read text, we're going to study text, and we're going to discuss text. And we thought that would be a great anchor for our learning together. Um, so, okay. So yeah, so yeah. that's the plan. So we, we will, as we go forward, we want to spend time with each of the four Gospels um, that were written at different time, uh, different periods within the early Christian movement. So today we want to actually do some historical framing. When were these texts created? What context did they emerge from and in? Um, and what is their situation within the wider canon of Jewish and Christian scriptures? So we want to kind of look at that big overview today, and then we'll start taking, um, we'll go gospel by gospel, and we'll take relevant passages and look at them in light of relevant passages from Hebrew scripture um, and see how they open each other up. But where it might be good to start today um, is just doing a little framing about Jesus and the, the development of the New Testament scriptures themselves. Um, before we do that, do you want to, us to look at the whole canon? or No, talk, just... about, talk about different ways of looking at Jesus first. Okay, so, um, an image of Jesus that, that really has dominated for 2,000 years of Christian history uh, is really a theologized image of Jesus that developed over several centuries in the early Christian movement that then kind of became anchored as the dominant understanding of his self-understanding and his, his mission and teaching. And that understanding kind of got blown apart a hundred years ago with the advent of critical historical biblical scholarship when we start really looking at the way these texts developed and evolved. Um, so maybe first I want to show you uh, just the chronology of the way the New Testament text developed. Um, and we'll, we'll pull this apart more and more over the weeks as we go. So this is just an initial framing. And feel free if I'm assuming knowledge or information from a Christian background that doesn't make sense, just say, hey, what do you mean by that? Or what's the context for that? Feel free to, to push pause and raise so your hand. So I have a question, right? So when you say a theologized or a theological idea of Jesus, that you're meaning Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth, died for our sins. Right. That so, so what is the meaning of Jesus? So Christians, after his death and the experience of his resurrection, his ongoing life in the community, which we'll look at what that could mean as we go along, but that was part of the early Christian experience. After his death, Christians then had to do meaning-making. Well, what did he mean? Why did he die? What was this about? And so they theologized those experiences. Mm -hmm. 
um, using metaphors from their own Jewish tradition. Um, we've got to remember all of these first Christians were Jewish followers of a Jewish rabbi. Um, and so they, they make meaning out of Jesus. Uh, Jonathan, when we were talking earlier, he used the, the phrase, the mythic Jesus. And I said, well, hold on there. And, and we said, though, if by myth we mean a container for sacred truth, a container for meaning, that myth doesn't mean you know, a lie, but myth is a way we express deep truth. Um, the Christians theologized or mythicized Jesus, so to speak, um, in their meaning making. So what I want to do is, on, on this tiny, tiny little, little piece of paper, <laughs> is, is first of all, um, we'll get to the question of who was Jesus, what did he teach, but we know that around the year 30, Jesus died. So the death of Jesus happens in the year 30. So, first of all, what we have in the, the Christian New Testament, as the New Testament, it's 27 books. It's not really books. It's a library of 27 documents. Four of them are Gospels, that is, accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Um, Thirteen of them are letters that are attributed to the man who would become known as St. Paul. Um, scholars today only think about seven of those are actually written by the historical Paul, and the rest of those 13 were written in his tradition, in his name. Um, and then there are about eight more letters. There's an apocalyptic book sort of in the tradition of Daniel that we call the Book of Revelation that sort of is a capstone. Um, and there's a book called the Acts of the Apostles that, account, that recounts um, the sort of early adventures and legends surrounding the, the first apostles of Jesus who went out to spread the tradition. Um, but we have to remember that for the early Christian movement, there was no New Testament. This te body of text didn't exist. We often think that the New Testament, I think in the Christian tradition, we think the New Testament produced the church. It's the other way around. The church produced the New Testament. Um, and so for the first several uh, centuries, Christians didn't have a Christian Bible. They just had the Bible, which was the Hebrew Bible, which was the Jewish scriptures. That was their Bible. Um, what would become known as the New Testament wasn't finalized until the 4th century. Um, the first record of the list of 27 books that make up the New Testament shows up in a letter uh, written by Bishop Athanasius in the 4th century. And it was at a couple different councils in the 300s that that was um, canonized or finalized as the contents. Um, so that's helpful to remember that these texts develop over a period of centuries. So, Jesus dies in the year 30. The first texts in the New Testament don't show up until around the year 50. So in the year 50, St. Paul, who we'll talk about later, um, who was a Jew, uh, begins writing letters to emerging communities that are in this Jesus movement. And at this point, they're not called Christians. That name doesn't exist yet. Um, in the Acts of the Apostles, we're told that the early followers in this movement were called followers of the way. And so the way was the teachings of Rabbi Jesus. So Paul begins writing letters to communities that are being planted who are following the teachings of Jesus. So in this chunk of time, we've got the letters of Paul and we've got the oral tradition that's circulating. Sayings of Jesus are circulating in oral tradition. Now, 
around the year 70, and this is something we'll come back to again and again, this is when the cataclysmic event of the destruction of the, the Jewish temple um, happens. Um, Rome comes in and raises Jerusalem to the ground, destroys the temple. The Gospels, the four Gospels that we'll be looking at, they all are written in the period after this. So in this window of time, we've got a hypothetical document that we're going to come back to, but just hold in mind, scholars posit there was this thing called Q from the German word Quelle, which means source. So there was a source that was a collection of sayings of Jesus <laughs> floating around. There's another text that we have now that was discovered in the 40s called the Gospel of Thomas, which was also just a collection of sayings, not the stories about Jesus, just sayings. Um, so Q, Thomas, and the oral tradition sayings are floating around in this period. But there's no gospel, no book or scroll. After around 70, Mark's gospel gets written. So that's the first gospel. What, 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 Mark. 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 So, and we'll talk about, all of this will unfold over weeks. But the very first narrative gospel that's attempting to tell the story of Jesus' life and his death is written sometime around the year 70. Um, and it's given the name Mark. We don't actually know who wrote this text. Um, then, Matthew, yeah. isn't it important to know if it's actually yeah. a fact that Mark's gospel was thought to be a response to the destruction? So, so yes, and we'll, as we go through each of these texts, we'll see what sort of created them or called forth each of these texts. But Jews um, and Christians who are Jews, um, are dealing with this cataclysmic event of how the faith continues when there's no temple. Uh, yeah? That's a good place to jump in and, and make this historical connection. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was the watershed moment, both in, Christi in the, er, this emerging in the Jewish world, because these are Jews still, um, uh, for what do we do now? Right? For hundreds of years, there has been a temple in Jerusalem, which is understood in the ancient mindset to be the holy mountain, the place where God dwells, the center of the universe, the place where, oh, you know, my, we make our pilgrimages to on the festivals, all of that. And now Rome destroys the temple and raises Jerusalem and the center of our religious experience is gone. It's gone. What we think of as Judaism today is the product of that cataclysm. There's a continuity between pre-destruction and post-destruction. But Judaism has to radically revise in order to be viable for people who no longer have their spiritual center. So when we did our class on shared origins, you could say that, that the Gospels and rabbinic literature of the same time are both responses to what do we do now. Does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, since so many of those rabbinic teachings are con and these Gospels and Jesus sayings are contemporaneous, they're really exciting to compare 
and realize that they are mostly the same, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're mostly similar teachings. Uh, we discussed in our class several years ago, saying, so what caused the split? And we'll be talking about that, but it doesn't appear to be the content of the teaching, per se. Right. So, Susan just raised the question of um, the Gospels being a response to the destruction of the Temple. Um, one of the uncomfortable things that begins happening at this period, um, so let me just finish out the, the math here. So mark around 70, and then let's put 90 here, and then put 110 here. So around between 80 and 90, we get two more Gospels written that the tradition calls Matthew and Luke. And then the last gospel to be written is written between the period of 90 and 110, probably, towards the very end of the first century, and that gospel is called John. So these gospels that are written after the destruction of the temple, we see something happening in some of Jesus' parables. And these early Jewish followers of Jesus are doing what um, Jewish historians have long done. You try to make sense of why this bad thing happened to us. So when you read the you know kings and chronicles it's oh well we were sent into exile because we were being punished because we weren't keeping Torah the way we were supposed to you know so often they're interpreting the negative aspects of history um, as a punishment right so this is something we see often in scripture and then we have scriptures like Job who comes around who's really arguing with that perspective well maybe bad things don't happen because we were bad maybe bad things just happen so these Gospels start saying, well, maybe the temple was destroyed because the officials rejected Jesus and Rome executed him. So the temple was destroyed as punishment for the death of Jesus, which is actually a very kind of Jewish thing to, to do. <coughs> yes, it is. Why did this happen to us? Yeah. Um, during this period, I mean, these are ancient times, obviously no internet. Right. So how, why was the proliferation of these, whatever was written or whatever was discussed, is this, I mean, did, you know, wandering rabbis go out and talk to communities? Or I, I don't right, quite so, get how people got the information. So how did people get this information? How was this discussed and dispersed at this period of time? So Jesus and the narrative gospels, which again come, you know, 40 years after um, his life, we have stories of him actually training students and sending them out. So there's one story where he sends 70 out, and they're itinerant, itinerant prophets, essentially, who are going out and spreading this teaching. Um, and, and then we have people who are forming communities, like the early disciples, they're, they're going around, they're planning communities of teaching, and they're writing letters back and forth. Um, it's, it's not, you know, a huge explosive movement yet. It's a, it's a reform or revitalization movement within Judaism at this point. And what happens in the 50s and 60s, the question starts opening up, which was an active question within Judaism. Um, there were a lot of Gentile God-fearers or proselytes who were interested in Judaism, um, but maybe, maybe they hadn't converted, maybe they weren't circumcised, but they would come and sit in synagogue and they would listen to the teachings of the prophets. It's important to know that in the Roman Empire, 
there were many people who were curious about Judaism. Judaism, in the time of the Roman Empire, was already an ancient and mysterious religion who only believed in one God. And there were many people in the Roman Empire, just like today, who were seeking. And they found monotheism intellectually appealing. Mm -hmm. So, they were known in the Jewish community as God-fearers, or, in other words, they weren't Jews, but they wanted to hang out with the Jewish community. And we have, in, even in the Psalms, like in Psalm 118, it says, uh, they're gathered in, they're, these, are, these are temple worship songs, and it says, oh, you, you know, sons of, um, uh, sons, oh, all the uh, house of Aaron, in other words, the priests, say, God's love is forever, all the Israelites say, God's love is forever, all the Yirei Hashem, all the God-fearers say. So we can suspect that there were, there, there were a lot of, um, of Roman pagans who were interested. And in that way, um, uh, the early um, Jewish <laughs> Jesus movement because we shouldn't call them Christians yet, I don't it's think. It's the Jesus movement. That's, that's the term that scholars usually now apply to the early years after Jesus' death. They call it the Jesus movement, um, which was uh, a teaching movement within Judaism. Are also forming communities around the Roman Empire at this time. So, in oh, these... Yeah. One other thing that I think is true is that the Gentile people in the Roman Empire were drawn to Judaism because of its ethical... Yes. Um, it was the most ethical group they knew, and that appealed to yes, them. Yes, the, the ethical teachings, the teachings on social justice, um, and the, the framing of monotheism, all of this was, was appealing to a lot of non-Jewish people. Um, and at this point... Um, may I ask <laughs> yeah. a question, please? Please. So, um, this is just clarification. So, the Gospels mm -hmm. were was accumulation of information and, and prophecies and etc. from many people and it was compiled together by whoever, Jew, you, Jude, or Mark, or whoever. Is that it? So was including his opinion of it, right? So what we know, um, and this is, this is sort of what we're getting to, um, so the question is, who compiled these? Where did they come from? How were they formed? And that's something we're going to be unfolding for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, but let me just finish this thread. So in the 50s and 60s, these Jewish Christians are now facing the question, what do we make of these God-fearers who are interested in Jesus? Um, do we welcome them into the Jesus way? Um, and if we do, do they have to convert to Judaism? and keep kosher, and if their men be circumcised. And so this is a raging debate in this period. And, and it's also a question within other, other synagogues that aren't you know, attached in any way to Jesus. What do we do with these God-fearers? Um, and so the Jesus tradition starts tiptoeing into the idea of, well, maybe they can come in and follow the way and teachings of Jesus without converting. So this is where the crack begins huh. opening to Gentiles. Um, and this um, begins the initial separation between the two traditions. It's just sort of subtle at this point, as Gentiles are being welcomed in, and some of the communities are saying, um, we won't ask you to 
keep all of the, the laws of Moses. Um, and so we actually see in some of the Christian scriptures, they make a simplified sort of group of laws. They say, okay, you can come in, um, you're not allowed to, to consume blood from food, you're not allowed to eat, um, uh, you know, essentially roadkill. Um, you're, um, you know, it's just a few basics that are required, but not the whole, the whole uh, list of Mosaic law. So that Gentile wing of the church is growing during this period, and it's not the church, you know, so to speak. It's a movement. Um, so how are these texts formed is the question that was asked over here. And so scholars think that Mark, this is scholarly consensus now, and this is, this is part of the sort of um, paradigm shift that has blown open over the last hundred years that's allowed us to think about Jesus and this movement in a different way. Once upon a time, we imagined that the four Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, like in the first generation of disciples. That Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were like there with Jesus, and they saw it all happen, and they wrote it all down. No mainstream scholar anywhere accepts that hypothesis now. Um, that's been sort of blown to pieces uh, by text-critical analysis of these books and the way they develop. So Mark, we date, as I said, to around the year 70. And it is the first narrative gospel. It's the first time they said, let's write down the story of this rabbi. Up until this point, sayings have been circulating in communities. And um, scholars theorized that collections of sayings were being gathered. So just a list of Jesus said, Jesus said, Jesus said. Um, we then get these two gospels a couple decades later, um, Matthew and Luke. So what scholars found pretty early on when they started analyzing these was that whoever wrote Matthew and whoever wrote Luke, they had a copy of Mark in front of them. And so actually, we, we can see that Mark is embedded in both of these texts. So someone took a copy of Mark and said, you know, I've got some more information. I'm going to expand this text. So about 90% of Mark, practically word for word, is embedded in Matthew. So Mark is embedded in there. About 50% of Mark is embedded in Luke. Um, and and it's, it's clear that they're just copying the text. You know, this is like word for word with an occasional tweak or change. And that's the other interesting thing. We see that Matthew and Luke felt free to change, edit, and revise Mark as they wanted to. So sometimes they would go, well, you know, I'm going to reframe it this way. Um, and they move the chunks of Mark around in different ways in their texts. So when scholars pulled this Gospel of Mark out of these two, they found there was this whole group of other material that was shared <coughs> that wasn't Mark. And so they posited that there must have been another source. And this is where the idea of few comes in. There was a source, a collection of sayings, and Matthew sat down with Mark and Q, and Luke sat down with Mark and Q, and they wove them together to create these two books. Um, so 
Then when you pull all of that material out, there are two strands that are unique in these traditions. So this is the material that Matthew came up with his own, on his own, and that Luke came up with on his own. <coughs> that was unique to their own communities. And so what they're doing, they're, they're weaving together these two sources, and then their own, what scholars call special Luke, and, and special Matthew, this is how these two Gospels were formed, by weaving together all of these sources into two new texts. And this is happening around 80 or 90, um, towards the end of the first century. Then finally, we get this, the fourth Gospel that's called John. And John is an entirely different kind of of gospel text. And this is when scholars realized we have two pictures of Jesus and only one of them can be historically accurate. So those three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels, synoptic. So synoptic means seeing together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke paint a very similar picture of Jesus. And then John paints a different picture of Jesus. You mean physically? Um, not his physical appearance, what he did in his ministry. In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is portrayed as teaching primarily through um, parables and aphorisms. This is his teaching modality. Um, mashal, right? Mashal is the Hebrew word, right? Mashal. So parables, aphorisms. This is how he teaches. And almost all of his teachings are about a reality he calls the kingdom or the reign or even the empire, the kingdom of God. Um, this is what he teaches. In the Synoptic Gospels, he talks almost nothing about himself. His message isn't about Jesus. His message is about God's reign, the kingdom of God. In John's Gospel, Jesus teaches in an entirely different way. And again, this is written around the year 100. In John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't teach in parables or aphorisms, and he doesn't teach about the kingdom of God. He teaches almost entirely these long sort of philosophical, mystical discourses, and they're almost all about him. Um, what are often called the I am statements. He says things like, I am the vine, I am the true bread come down from heaven, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am, I am, I am. Um, and he proclaims from the beginning of his ministry his own messianic identity and mission. And so Jesus' preaching in John is about Jesus. Now, in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus does not talk about himself. And there's this, um, what scholars call the, the messianic secret sometimes, um, There are a few times in the Gospels where someone suggests that Jesus is the Messiah, and he says, don't tell anyone about this. <laughs> or there's a time where he's asked directly in Matthew's Gospel, are you the Messiah? And he says, you say that I am. And so in the Synoptic tradition, he deflects this question. He doesn't respond to it, or he doesn't engage it, or if someone says it, he silences them. Um, so some scholars say that this is because after the fact, these followers of Jesus 
began envisioning him as Messiah, as anointed. And they go, well, he must have known, but he didn't talk about it. Well, he must have kept it a secret. So there's this... So here, though, he's proclaiming himself Messiah. So when scholars looked at these two portraits, you've got one where Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, is proclaiming himself the Messiah, and all of his teaching has to do with who he is and his sort of role and mission. And then another tradition represented by three other Gospels where he doesn't talk about that from the beginning, he doesn't give in to that at all, and his teaching is entirely in parables. The scholar said these are two irreconcilable portraits. One of these is historical and the other can't be. Um, only one of these can be true, um, historically true, that is. And so the contemporary scholarly understanding of the Gospel of John says the Gospel of John does not reflect the historical Jesus. Uh, it reflects the late first century Christian community's meditations on Jesus. They said, for us, he is the way, the truth, and the life. In him we have seen the light of the world. For us, he is, he is bread, he is manna come down from heaven. Um, but this is a, a spiritual understanding, uh, a meditation on his inner meaning written towards the end of the first century. And it doesn't reflect the way Jesus taught about himself in his actual life. <coughs> yeah? Was there a heretical branch of any kind that doubted the authenticity of Jesus' performances of miracles? That doubted in the authenticity? Words, was it taken by both of these cases, <coughs> that Jesus raised the dead or was capable of doing so and was actually raised from the dead by himself? Was there any branch that says his parables were enough? Oh, so you have... so. What we know from this map over here, early Christianity was incredibly diverse. You have lots of different strands and lots of different communities who are trying to keep this Jesus tradition alive. You have Paul who's on a mission to the Gentiles. You have Christians in Jerusalem who are keeping a very Jewish um, kind of Christianity. Who were their leaders? Um, James the Just, who mm -hmm. is remembered as the brother of Jesus, helped lead the Jerusalem church. Um, which wasn't a church at the time, by the right, way. Right, right, right. Um, they use, Paul, for example, uses in his letters the Greek word um, ekklesia, um, ecclesia, which means gathering. We, in, we translate it today as church, but these were gatherings. The synagogue in Hebrew is Beit Knesset, the house of gathering, translated into Greek as synagogue, the house of gathering. So... That's, again, all of this is in context of what all the Jews were doing. And, you know, one of the things I gleaned from listening to Matthew is that uh, there wasn't a unified Christianity. Right? There was not. when these, There were many different followers of Jesus interpreting, trying to follow, who were inspired by him living that way, but they didn't by any means agree on how to do that, uh, on what that meant, right. especially in terms of, uh, as, as the decades go by, who gets to be part of this. So but, still but, John, but what I was asking was, was the central thesis accepted that he is risen? Ah, so, you know, we have to talk about even what that meant for early Christians, what that meant in a Jewish context, um, how that was understood. 
And that's probably something for another day. Hold, hold on to that. But hold on to that. But yes, different Christians had different understandings of what Jesus' death meant, what it meant for him to continue to be alive in the community in a new way. Like, there's a range of understandings that are represented within. Furthermore, furthermore, resurrection of the dead was an accepted Jewish belief of the first century. Jesus' resurrection, the idea of it, is, was not a heretical Jewish belief. Furthermore, different healers and miracle workers in the Jewish tradition at that time were known as the Son of God. It was an honorific because they were healers or miracle workers. So, so much of this that I'm learning now are not why Christianity became Christianity. They were Jewish, they, there were great debates in the first century of Judaism between the Sadducees and the Pharisees who show up in the Gospels, right? We'll be reading about them. We'll be talking about who they were. By the way, whenever we do a course, right, the first week, we're, it's like we're putting little dots on a big picture and you have to be so patient <laughs> because we're going to be connecting dots as the weeks go by, which is why it's going to be important if you're able to attend all the, to attend regularly. You'll come in and you'll have missed a lot of dots um, if you miss a few classes. Uh, so, but I want to point, I just want to point that I will be getting to that sort of stuff. But these were Jewish understandings of the first century. They weren't Christian understandings. They were Jewish understandings. Yes? Yes. Um, so I, I realize that I'm pretty unlearned about the Gentiles. Yeah. They weren't Jews. Right. So Gentile was a word for, for non-Jews. It was the Romans. It was everyone who wasn't Jewish. And did they have their uh, many different religious practices? Oh, like yeah. Religious yeah, you know, Gentiles could be following this, that, or the other path. It, was, it included the Romans, but it, it, it was everyone who wasn't Jewish. So every other religion was a Gentile religion, so to speak. And but when it's used, we're usually talking in the context of these scriptures in the context of the Roman Empire. That's sort of the range that we're looking at. But within that range, there were lots of different polytheistic observances. Oh, okay. um, but everyone would have to pay tribute to the emperor, to Caesar. Um, he was seen as a, a deity, you know? He was, he was God on this earth, um, which of course continually sets Judaism up against mm. Roman <laughs> pagan polytheistic practices, why they're always butting heads, yeah. Um, let me just, so let me just, we'll jump in here, but what I want to point out is that when scholars recognize, and this is something very uneasy for lots of Christians and Christian communities who faithfully sit in the pews, um, John is a very beloved gospel, and to be told this doesn't really reflect the historical Jesus can feel kind of devastating. Um, and this is where we get verses like, for God so loved the world, God sent God's only Son, um, that whosoever believeth in him. Um, this is where we get a very theologized Jesus, where he's really a divine revealer. He is the Word incarnate. He speaks and proclaims about himself and his messianic mission and his mission to die for the sins of the world. Um, this is, again, the Christian theological reflection on the meaning of Jesus for the community at the end of the first century. Um, so it's not to say that it's wrong, but it's to say that it, it wasn't Jesus' own historical self-understanding. <coughs>
it's the meaning making emerging in the tradition. Um, they have to confront the fact that he is crucified, right? The rabbi that you've been following has been executed by Rome. Um, what are the metaphors at hand for making sense of a death? One is temple sacrifice. You know, this is a, 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 a powerful metaphor from the Jewish tradition, and to say, well, Jesus has been the perfect sacrifice, to end all sacrifice. They were meaning-making within a Jewish context with Jewish metaphors. Um, and so John is the end result of, of what, a de uh, several, a century of meaning-making. We're at around the year 100 now. Jesus died around year 30. And this is the meaning-making. Um, yes? Problematic in that is that the, the Jews in the Gospel of John, mm -hmm. in that process of yes. making a meta-story, become the ones who reject. Right. right. And so this, again, is where we have to see that we're now moving outside of historical territory, and they're dealing with meaning-making. So back on this map here, so what happens in 70 is that the temple is destroyed. Now, this creates uh, a, a reaction within Judaism an how existential we, crisis. Right. How do we maintain identity? How do we preserve our tradition within this context? And it also creates, um, understandably, a kind of, <clears throat> I don't know if I want to say the word um, regressive, but uh, that's not the right word. It's like a drawing of boundaries. Like, yep. we've got to maintain identity, um, which is, of course, what you do in the face of this reality. So at this point, um, Jewish uh, followers of Jesus are still integrated into the synagogues. This is just one more option within Judaism. Some Jews were following Bar Kokhba and the revolt he led. Some were following Jesus and his teachings. But they're integrated into the synagogues. <clears throat> now, after the destruction of the temple, suddenly these other sort of strands seem threatening to preserving Jewish identity. Because the center is gone. The center's gone, right. And so, around the year 80, synagogues start issuing anathemas. And actually, Christians are Christians, Followers of Jesus within the synagogues are actually pushed out of the synagogues, are kicked out of the synagogue. If you're going to follow this movement, you're, you're, you're anathema. Um, what does anathema mean in Greek? Um, Not well. It, it's, it means... Um, Cursed, you know, it means um, you're not welcome. You're, you're it's, out. It's heresy. It's it's yeah. You're out. Okay. And antithetical to the core. Antithetical. To the core. Right. Antithetical the to the core belief. And so this is when, around the year eighty, when Christians are now being, or Jesus followers are being expelled from synagogues, that the real rift begins. Uh, between the two traditions. Yeah. I, I'm lost a little. Why were they expelled from the synagogue? So this movement was seen as a threat to the integrity of the attempt to preserve Jewish identity after the destruction of the temple. Right. So the oh. temple is destroyed in the year 70. The temple, we cannot underestimate uh, what that did to the Jewish people. It's like you... You could, so you have your capital, you have your temple, you have all eyes turned to Jerusalem. You can be scattered around Judea and the Roman Empire and have all kinds of beliefs and understandings of what it means to be a Jew, but you all send your half shekel every year to the temple, right? It is, yes, Gail. Josephus says 
Josephus, a first century Jewish historian who gives us a lot of information about what was happening at the time of Jesus. There were 15 million Jews in existence at the time of the Roman Empire in a world with a much smaller population. Josephus says that over one million died along with the destruction in the of war. the temple. Yeah. Oh, right. The temple wasn't just destroyed. Mil uh, hundreds of thousands of Jews were executed. Hundreds of thousands more were deported into slavery. Um, what starts around the year 66, you have essentially Jewish like guerrilla, you know, warfare fighters who are, who are resisting Rome. And Rome says, okay, we've got to squash this threat. So they first start going in and, and eradicating these movements of, of resistance fighters. But then they realize, you know, we've just got to make a clear stand here and send a clear message. And so they don't just work to eradicate these pockets. They just say, we're going to wipe out the whole community and, and destroy them. And town. there are Jewish communities in Alexandria, in Tarsus, in uh, the Asia Minor, in Rome who have been part of the Roman Empire, but sending, that give to Caesars what is Caesars, and unto God's what is God's, right? They have been sending their ta Roman taxes to Caesar, and they have been paying their tribute to the temple and making Jerusalem. So they are a fifth column within the Roman Empire, right? So they're rebellion. Yes, Gail? Was that the start of the Just a minute, Semitism? Ronnie, just a second. Someone else was just oh, about to say. Yes, 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 yes. After 70, the rebellions didn't stop. They continued intermittently until the year 135 when the Bar Kokhba revolt was crushed and Jewish, uh, so it took a period of about 70 years for Jewish resistance to be crushed in the Roman Empire. So what I'm trying to say is that the whole religious upheaval is within this context of incredible resistance yes. and political upheaval yes. with lots of different things happening. But in addition, which we never say, to have that many people killed yeah. is personal psychological trauma mm -hmm. way in addition to losing the centerpiece of the religion. Right. And I think we need to consider, just keep that in mind, yes. of what that meant. The, the psychic trauma to the whole community. The yeah. world mm -hmm. got killed. Right, right. That's and they were trying to find meaning for that as well as they they, they were trying to find meaning for why this had happened. Right. And so both the two branches. Right. And so you have some of these Christians who are writing gospels like Matthew and Luke here saying, Well, this happened to us. The temple was destroyed because because Jesus was rejected. So that's their attempt to make sense of why this happened to us. Um, but then Go ahead, John. So, but I want to get back to what Ronnie's question was, which was what, why do the Jewish communities begin rejecting the believers in Jesus in their synagogue? So, no. Uh, also, was that the start of anti-Semitism? No. No. Um, uh, we can't put a date on it, and we can't make a sort of facile comment about that. So we'll be getting to that. Well, anti-Semitism, if you mean Christian anti-Semitism, that's something develops, but anti-Semitism is what led to the destruction of the temple, you know? Like, well, that, was, so, that was Roman so, anti-Semitism. Okay, um, I, I want to finish a thought, but I'll take your comment. Yes. So I think this might be seminal. I don't know that much about this, but the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and how they perceive the possibility of a 
of resurrection after death and how that divided the Jewish people? Weren't there like two different camps? I think no. we've got to pause that though and let him finish this thought because right. that's a whole other thread. Right. That's not that's not the seminal issue. That's not the seminal issue. The, fa- like the Pharisees yeah. were the ones who promoted the idea of resurrection. And Jesus was a Pharisee who was debating among the Pharisees. <clears throat> or, or perhaps was a Pharisee. We this, don't know for sure. Uh, well, he, was, one but he, hung out, he hung out with the Pharisees. No, we can't say that Jesus was a Pharisee, but he hung out with the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the priestly sect who, uh, did, who disagreed with the Pharisees' attempt to create an oral law interpreting the Torah uh, that was quite radical. We're going to be getting to all that, but I, unfortunately we can't get to it right now. Order in the court. Yeah. Order. <laughs> okay, so exactly I'm gonna fin- I want to finish. I was, I'm, still, I'm still following the thread here. So the cataclysm, the dislocation, the desperate need to establish community boundaries, right? So To maintain identity. To maintain identity now that we are fully in diaspora. Right? We do not have our political and spiritual center anymore. We are in diaspora. We are dispersed. How do we keep it alive? And, and so it's in first century Judaism at that point was radically diverse. You had it was already radically diverse. You had all kinds of interpretations and understandings and movements within the tradition. But now something has to unite us because before the temple was the uniting factor. Now that's gone. So what's going to hold us? What together? is going to unite us? <clears throat> For instance, in Alexandria there was a Jewish uh, scholar named Philo. In the first century, we had his teachings. He spoke and taught in Greek. His understandings of the Torah were radically different than the Pharisees in, in Jerusalem. Or uh, the, there were many interpretations of Judaism. Once the center was gone, what is going to hold it together? And so it becomes much more essential that boundaries are established even more than before between Jews and not Jews. Right? And so the early followers of Jesus become a threat to identity boundary maintenance. Identity boundary maintenance. Good word. Um, and this is happening in the decades after. So uh, the destruction of the temple. The Gospels are being um, uh, composed. And rabbinic Judaism, as we know it, that will allow the Jews to survive in diaspora, is being formulated and created. Uh, they're both happening at the same time. They are both responses to the destruction in that sense, where it, the only way to continue is to radically revise how Judaism is organized, because it was a temple and Ju- Jerusalem-centric religion. Why, when you look at the Jewish prayer book, is Jerusalem mentioned 400 times? Because we enshrined that memory as part of our new identity. Right? If I forget the O Jerusalem, that my right hand wither, that my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I don't remember you. You know, it's like that becomes, next year in Jerusalem is how we end the Passover Seder. So that was established as a way. Uh, so, so in other words, we can go on and on about this, and we will, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I was just still circling around to that. Why might the Jews who were adherents of Jesus and the Jews who were not adherents of Jesus 
in those decades after the destruction of the temple, why they might start excluding each other. Right. And so, so historical circumstance, not theological. So the texts that are written, all of the gospels, the four narrative gospels in the New Testament, they all come of age after the destruction of the temple and are written in light of that experience. Actually, all of the New Testament, except the letters of Paul, are written after the destruction of the temple. So Christianity is being shaped through that same lens. John's gospel, however, is the only gospel written after the final expulsion of Jesus' followers from the synagogues. And so you don't see this sharp divide in Mark, Matthew, or Luke between um, followers of Jesus and the Jews. At this point, they're still Jews, although they're welcoming Gentile proselytes and converts into the tradition. But with John's gospel, now the expulsion has happened. And the thing that's hard to remember, because Christians have for so long been the, the persecutors with the numbers and the force of empire behind them, at this point, the followers of Jesus are a minority within a minority. They're a persecuted minority within a persecuted minority. So Jews are being persecuted by Rome, and now Jesus' followers are being persecuted by Jews, and they've been pushed out. So now they're living with this this sort of martyrdom complex, this like we've persecution been doubly, mentality, right? persecution mentality, they've been doubly expelled, and, and so John's gospel is written in that light by a persecuted minority who, so suddenly they start using the language of the Jews, um, and you can imagine their writing as a minority who's hurting, but when that minority then grows and has power and now has a text saying the Jews are the ones who did this to us and the power flips, you know, it's oh. one thing for the little kid sibling to say, I'm going to kill you. It's another thing for the adult to say, I'm going to kill you. Um, well so so anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Semitism is really born after the year 80 in an explicit so that, way. So he is answering your question, Ronnie. And is enshrined. Its beginnings are enshrined in the Gospel of John. So I've got a question. Yeah. Technically, would one say that the Synoptic Gospels are a form of rabbinic teachings, rabbinic writing? I mean, is there, when does that separate? Great question. That's a great question. question. The Synoptic Gospels, we have to remember, the Gospels are Jewish books. Written by Jews. Even Luke's gospel, which we think may have been written by a, a Gentile, he was a Gentile proselyte who had converted to Judaism and then followed the Jesus path. So all of these are Jewish books. And often the authors are doing, um, what they're doing is, is sort of, and we'll see this as we come to these texts, it's kind of midrashic, you know? They are telling stories about Jesus through the lens of their own Jewish <laughs> stories and experience. Um, and so that's what will be unfolding over several weeks is the, the deep Jewishness of the way the stories are told um, and of what Jesus is doing. Uh, do you want to say something about No, that was well said. I'd like to take some more questions. Why don't you? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, uh, are all the, is the language of all the Gospels um, similar? What language was it in? Yeah. Would it have been written, would it have been readable by a literary population, and how was it disseminated? Yeah, so Jesus, we don't know positively what language or dialect (coughs) Jesus spoke, but the scholarly consensus is that it would have been Aramaic. Um, He may also have spoken... Say what Aramaic is. 
Um, so Aramaic is, you say what Aramaic is. <laughs> Aramaic is a Semitic language. That was what? a Semitic a language. Semitic language. It's a really meaning, cognate language to Hebrew. Meaning it, it was spoken all over the, um, what we call now the Middle East, the ancient Near East. Um, it's a cognate language to Hebrew. You, and it was much more widely spoken than Hebrew was, which was limited to the, the, the Jewish people. In, 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 um, uh, and our scriptures are written in, but Aramaic, which it, you can, if you are no Hebrew, you can understand a lot of Aramaic and vice versa. Aramaic was the language of the entire region. The Vulgate. Hmm? It was the Vulgate. The Vulgate meaning the the, 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 the lingua franca, yeah. the what everybody spoke, uh, which is why, for example, the Kaddish prayer is an Aramaic. Yitkadavikah yeah. right? That's Aramaic. Shmei Rabbah means Shem Hagadol or Shem Harabah Harav, the the big name, um, but Shmei Rabbah. Uh, is Aramaic compared to Hebrew. And a few passages of the Hebrew Bible are originally in Aramaic. And some passages in the Hebrew Bible appear in Aramaic. Even in the five books of Moses, Aramaic it appears sometimes because it was used widely. There are still Aramaic speakers today who've, uh, who've endured in the deep valleys of Iran, northern Iran and Syria. And Syria. And Syria. I was, I'm in that region there. We could call it Kurdistan if we want. Um, uh, and uh, uh, you will find Aramaic speakers still in the world today. But the reason the Kaddish is in Aramaic is because the rabbis were clear that they wanted this prayer to, to pe for people to understand it so they could respond. Yehei Rabba Mavarach. In other words, the responses are all Aramaic responses because that was the language that the, that the common Jews spoke. So that's why they, they prayed in Hebrew, they studied in Hebrew, texts were written mostly in Hebrew, sacred texts, but Aramaic was spoken. So that's why it's a reasonable assumption that Aramaic was Jesus' spoken language. Right. And it's what would have been spoken in, 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 in Galilee, in Nazareth, the places Jesus moved and was from. Um, it's also very likely that he would have spoken at least some Greek because Jews did speak some Greek. That was, again, right. the language of the oppressors of Greek, the empire. Greek was an even bigger <laughs> lingua franca, right, container. If you wanted to make, do business internationally, you needed Greek, right? If you wanted to send letters to the emperor, you needed Greek. So there are, from that period, a thousand at least Greek loanwords that may come into Hebrew, like, What's a, uh, what's a word, like afikomen, right? That's the, you simply, if you celebrate Passover, the last piece of matzah is called an afikomen. That comes from a Greek word, epikomenos, which means at the end of the meal. Um, it, and so there are hundreds of examples of Greek loan words that make it into Hebrew during this time. So yes, you, you knew Greek as well. And depending on how, how educated you need to be in it, if you were a peasant, eh, you didn't know it, but if, yeah. What did the scribes write in? Scribes. Which scribes? Which? Well, when we speak of the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, so we're going to, can you hold that question 
Because the scribes and the Pharisees, we need to unpack. There have been what that, is, this, yeah. what that means. The scribes uh, are around for centuries and centuries and are the keepers. They're in, a, in a fundamentally illiterate society, the scribes are the keepers of the sacred uh, lore. And they, so, uh, they wrote in Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, yeah. No, sorry, uh, sorry Lenore first. Mm-hmm. Right? And it was referred to often as Koine. Koine. So here's my question. So here are these Jews writing, you're putting together all this stuff, ultimately we'll write it down. So even Mark, who's, who's that early, unless I'm wrong, the Gospels are written in Attic Greek. Koine. Uh, okay, I always thought it was Attic. I'm sorry. Maybe it, it was Koine, but, but still Attic Greek. It's Greek, but the, um, I guess uh, from um, an academic point of view, that was differentiated from aren't necessarily writing, like Philo Judaeus is writing in Greek. Um, but what, what we see happening at this point, so first of all, to go back to the question over here, Jesus was speaking probably in Aramaic, probably knew some Greek. Um, most of his teaching would have been in Aramaic to the local Jewish people that his mission was to. Um, the Gospels are written after 70, so this is when Gentile converts are certainly coming in. Um, St. Paul, almost exclusively in his letters, writing in the 50s, um, he quotes from the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Greek translation. Um, so this is what sort of the learned uh, class would have often read the Scriptures in, in Greek rather than Hebrew. Um, so Paul is writing to largely Greek-speaking audiences, and the Gospels, as far as we know, were all written in Greek. Um, Part of that was probably to make them, as Jonathan said, that was like the, the real universal language. It was probably an attempt to make them as accessible <coughs> to as wide a population as possible to both Jew and Gentile readers. Um, I thought you were going to say something else. Uh, I do. I want, now, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking out loud, everybody. Uh, um, Hebrew, at this time, was no longer a daily spoken language. It hadn't been for quite some time. It was a literary language. It was a sacred language. So, depending on what part of the world you lived in as a Jew, would depend what your everyday language was. And if you were outside of the land of the Middle East, if you were outside the land of Israel in that region, you would speak Greek. If you were inside, you would probably speak Aramaic. Uh, And no Greek as well. And if you were learned, you would know Hebrew because all the sacred literature and all the liturgy is in <coughs> Hebrew. But it's important to remember that Hebrew was not an everyday spoken language at this time. That's why the Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on, or the rabbinic commentary on, on Jewish law, is almost entirely in Aramaic because it centered in Babylonian and that's where Aramaic was. So, 
it depends what language you spoke as a Jew depended on where in the world you lived. And then your knowledge of Hebrew was dependent on how educated you were. So writing in Greek makes sense. Um, uh, rabbinic literature generally is in Aramaic. Uh, and I think that has to do with geography more than with some ideological choice. Does that make sense, everybody? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my take on it. Comes out of way that. We know it comes out of that. Yeah. So, but before that, right. there were different ways of looking at Judaism. And, yes. And Christianity, Jesus' way, was one way. Philo was a way. Whatever. These different, right? So, so after the destruction, is it so that the two that lived on are Christianity and what we think of as only with hindsight? Okay. Only with historical hindsight. Rabbinic Judaism, as we know it, only gains, I guess the word would be hegemony, you know, um, uh, becomes authoritative in the uh, 9th or 10th century. Okay, so are there... It takes, when we talk about this historical thing happened, and then there's a process that only in hindsight can we tell a coherent story about. Okay, so what I just want to know is, like, say Judas, what is the guy from Alexandria? Philo. Philo. He had his ideas. Were there, were there other rabbis where people were writing down their sayings and their parables? Yes. Was that happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so there were a number of movements at the time of Jesus as well. One was the Essene movement, which was this kind of almost quasi-monastic Judaism. You know, there was a response to the corruption of the temple by Roman influence. And so their response was that we have to extract ourselves from society because it's become too impure and... Then you have the zealots who said, we're going to stay in society and we're going to violently fight against Rome. Um, you had these movements of, of uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. You had Jesus who essentially models a kind of third way. He doesn't withdraw from society the way the Essenes would do. He also doesn't violently revolt. But he stays, it's sort of this nonviolent revolutionary movement within society. Um, that, that in some ways is represented, I guess, by other precursors in first century Judaism. And one of the, one of the rabbis he's closest to in teaching is Rabbi Hillel. Um, they share some sayings and teachings, and Hillel would have slightly preceded Jesus. Yes, yes. And uh, um, so there were many, so you were asked about the Sadducees before. They were generally un- identified with the priesthood which controlled the power in Jerusalem because they controlled the temple. <clears throat> when the temple was destroyed, the Sadducees' power base was gone. And so post-70, they lose, the, uh, they've lost their kind of, their, their base. So, but anyway, um, uh, what you said about um, uh, these differences, oh, so uh, Matthew loaned me uh, some, a book to read called Jesus, A New Vision by Marcus Borg. I'll show it to you later. Um, where he lays out a pretty persuasive description of the historical Jesus as a, an itinerant, wonder-working, prophetic healer who is trying to create spiritual renewal within the Jewish people at that time. It's a, and um, 
We'll be talking much more about that, I'm that's, sure. That's one of, so we see the self-understanding of Jesus. So maybe that's what we should start moving towards. Um, so when we sort of peel back the late first century theological understanding of Jesus, which, again, isn't to say it isn't spiritually true for Christians, but it wasn't Jesus' um, historical self-understanding. When we look at what we can say with some confidence about the historical Jesus and his own self-understanding, uh, we see that he saw himself as having a mission to Israel, to his own people, um, and often in the gospel narratives, he will encounter people outside of that movement. Um, uh, there, there will be a Canaanite or a Syrophoenician woman, and he'll say, no, my mission is to, to my people, to the people of Israel. Um, there's a story where this one woman comes to Jesus and says, but, but Rabbi, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And um, because he says, I came not for the dogs, but for the people of Israel. So he's putting down Gentiles, essentially. And then he has this moment where she says, ah, but don't the dogs get to eat the crumbs from under the table? And then he has compassion for her um, and, and, and helps her. But you see that in his early self-understanding, he's focused on the Jewish people and working with his own tradition. Um, so uh, Marcus Borg does some sort of broad brushstrokes, like what can we see from the synoptic tradition that Jesus was up to? One, he was a social prophet. Um, within the tradition of Jewish social prophets, he was critiquing the religious hierarchy. He was critiquing religious hypocrisy. Um, he was calling out... Um, emphasizing ritual over compassion. Um, we see the prophets doing this again and again and again, right? You know, I don't want your Sabbaths and your new moons. I want justice to roll down like rivers. Um, so Jesus stands in that vein of the Jewish social prophet. He also stands in the vein of the Jewish mystic. Um, he's essentially a Jewish mystic or contemplative. The Gospels record him as having regular contemplative practice. Um, it, they recount his, uh, we're told that regularly Jesus, um, Mark's gospel, writing in 70, says that very early in the morning while it was still dark, he would get up, go to a quiet place, and there he would pray. Um, and so he's sort of going, and this isn't word prayer, this is silent prayer. Before the day begins, he's sort of centering himself and then engaging the world from that place of, of deep contemplative prayer. Um, so he's rooted in that Jewish contemplative strain. Um, oh, which is, don't, I don't want to take it, but there's a saying in Talmud Brachot that the men of old would spend an hour contemplating and preparing before they prayed. Right? That's a saying in the, in the Jewish tradition. So we see Jesus steeped in the reality of, of, of spirit and of prayer, um, of Jewish prayer. Um, he's also a renewal or revitalization movement founder or initiator. He's initiating a renewal movement within Judaism. Not a new religion separate from Judaism, but he sees his mission as a renewal movement. Yeah. I'd like to recommend uh, a book along these lines, Rabbi Jesus by Bruce Chilton from Bard College. Very readable, explores this. These things. Cops, yeah, in depth, yeah. Thank you, thank yeah. you. Um, so yeah, a revitalization movement founder, um, a Jewish mystic, uh, also a Jewish wisdom teacher, um, a sage, a Jewish sage. His teaching model is rooted in Jewish traditions of aphorisms, parables, uh, teaching stories that are meant to kind of 
you know, break open your head, make you think in new ways, sort of shock you uh, into seeing in a new way. So a wisdom teacher, a renewal movement founder, a mystic, and finally, he does stand within the tradition um, of charismatic Jewish healers and wonder workers, which was a part of that whole first century milieu. Um, and so we see him often in the stories of the Gospels um, healing people. These are often people who have been excluded from community because of their illness, and he reintegrates people into community who have been pushed to the edges or the margins. Um, this is another thing that's clear in the Synoptic portrait. Jesus has a robust concern for the poor and the oppressed in his teaching in the Synoptic tradition. That almost vanishes entirely in John's Gospel. Huh. This is more about, you know, the divine self-proclamation. So Jesus is, yeah, Arnie, go ahead. Uh, I'm just, uh, two, two things. One about the Synoptic Bible and one about language. Um, my understanding of the synoptic, the word actually comes from synopsis because uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, tell the story of the nativity and some of the passages in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are almost identical. And, and so yeah, well they are identical because it's this source theory. So Mark and Matthew and Luke are quoting in big chunks Mark. Yes. They've just embedded Mark into their text. And they're also sharing, theoretically, this Q source. And so they do often repeat, word for word, a whole chunk of text. Exactly. So for me, a synoptic comes from synopsis, uh, which is, you know, fits, fits the whole thing. The, the other thing is, is uh, language. Uh, just, just the way Hebrew was not spoken in Israel, except in the court mm -hmm. uh, and in the synagogue, Latin was not spoken in Rome. Mm -hmm. You can go to Rome in the marketplace. No one spoke Latin. Latin was the language of, of, of the government and the courts. Everyone spoke Greek. Everyone spoke Greek. The influence of Alexander the Great was so enormous. And, and then you made a reference to the Septuagint uh, Bible, which was the first ever translation of the Jewish Bible into a foreign language. And, and that occurs around 20 of the Common Era. No, no, no. Earlier. Septuagint yeah, is... Yeah, it's pre... Because because the early Christians, quote, that's the Bible they were using. Okay, it's about so, 200 B.C. Yeah. Septuagint. So the, the, reason, the reason for the Septuagint Bible... Septuagint. Uh, is, is, is the fact that there was a huge Jewish community in... In, uh, in dispersion. In, in, in Egypt, <coughs> and uh, the population of Jews in Egypt is about a million... And population of Jews in Alexandria about uh, 400,000 and Jews were uh, alienated from their Bible uh, because they couldn't read it they anymore. couldn't read it they couldn't read it so when the Bible is translated into Greek Greek Jew, uh, Jews who are speaking Jews uh, who are speaking Greek can finally read their own Bible that's right so keep that in mind it's called the Septuagint comes from the Greek for 70 because the legend is that 70 scholars sat down and each wrote their own translation and lo and behold every translation was identical which gives it its veracity as like the true right zero um, and uh, and and this came in the wake of the conquests of Alexander the Great great which brought Hellenism and the Greek language and culture to the entire basically uh, um, Mediterranean and all the way to all the way to India, um, and 
As a result, there became many, many communities of Jews who weren't living in Judea who no longer spoke Hebrew or even Aramaic, because if you speak Aramaic, you can figure out the Hebrew, right? So it was determined to translate the entire Hebrew Bible in the, around the year 200 BCE into Greek, and that translation is called the Septuagint. And it's very important because there are so many, it seems that the, the Gospels had the Septuagint as their biblical source, because when you look at the Septuagint versus uh, the Hebrew Bibles that were transmitted to us, there are slight differences sometimes, uh, because it's a scribal tradition, so a scribe is copying, and whether they're willful or accidental changes happen, and so they're not, the Septuagint is not identical, it's 99.5% identical, but, it's not, but that's what the Septuagint is. Uh, I want to make some larger reflections, if that, Yes. Really yes, please. Because you talked about how the, it, it came to a point where the synagogue said you can't be in our you can't be Jewish anymore because you're doing that stuff that isn't what we say it should be. So when was like baptism? Like so that goes back to pre-Jesus. Um, it comes into the tradition through another prophet who was working in the first century named. Yohanan named John the, John. the Baptist, uh, or the baptizer. And he was, again, a Jewish social prophet who, um, unlike Jesus, who moved among the people in the towns and the villages, John withdrew from society, and he lived out in the wilderness. And there was a whole movement of people who were coming to John. Um, and his ritual practice was to immerse them as a, a sign of their, you know, it's, it's essentially a mikvah, but it was happening in the river, uh, symbolically as a sign of their, their turning. Um, okay, so to understand this, we have to understand what ritual immersion is in Judaism. From the beginning of, you know, from early, 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 in order to be ritually uh, 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 ready, Pure is the word that gets translated, but richly ready to enter into the presence of God, you had to immerse consciously in living waters. So, um, and this was done for women until this, to this very day, if you're an uh, observant Jewish woman, after your menstrual cycle is over, you immerse because it's, you've been in touch with blood and you need to be in the presence of God, you need to be ritually purified from your contact with blood. If you are about to, many Jews uh, will go to the mikvah on Friday before Shabbos so that they can be ritually ready to um, uh, uh, enter this holy Shabbos. Because you if you're ritually impure, you, you're not ready for the holy, to enter holiness. Does that make sense, everybody? And there's lots of rules for it. And when you go to digs in uh, uh, of ancient Jewish cities, they find dozens of mikvahs because it was so such an important part of the practice. Um, so think of so John the Baptist. It's a guy named Yohanan. John is the Greek of Yohanan, right? A Hebrew name, who is a spiritual revival teacher, and he takes this idea of mikvah, which everybody knows about and says, you need to have a full spiritual renewal through this activity. The Greek translation of immersion of this is baptism. 
That's a Greek word for a Jewish practice. For a Jewish practice. So John the Baptist is Yochanan the Mikvah man. And so people are coming out to the wilderness because his, his preaching his, uh, is just like electrifying the population. You know, there's, what do we do? Rome is occupying. There are all these different options. And he's saying you need, he spiritualizes the mikvah. It's not just he about spiritualizes rit- it. It's That's not right. just about ritual purity to go to the temple. It's about a spiritual washing and turning of one's life. And picture on Passover, on any pilgrimage festival, that, that how many people had to go to the mikvah before they could enter the precincts of the temple to bring their offering. This was part of the whole ritual sort of... Uh, um, But it's about ritual purity as well. So well, no, I would put it a different way, Matthew. I'd say that um, the just like we critique, just like the prophets, the ancient prophets critique rote performance of ritual. Just like we critique rote performance of ritual, is that what God really wants? Say the prophets. Say us. Is that what really gets you into the Holy <laughs> Spirit? Rote performance. So in the first century. There were Jewish critics, spiritual revivalists like John the Baptist, or we should say like Jesus, who were saying, that's not going to do it, gang. This has to be coming from your soul. And so uh, it's been an interesting process for me to be reading about this through uh, teachers like Marcus Borg and through talking to Matthew, because I identify with people who are saying rope performance is an it. I identify with the prophets who say it. I identify with the, the John the Baptist or Jesus who says it. I identify with, my, with contemporaries who say it. Uh, and, and the Essenes were like that too. Well, the Essenes are an inter- they're a little mysterious and a longer conversation. Um, they, were, they were preoccupied with ritual purity. They left, they left because the high priesthood was at this point by the, uh, by the first century BCE, First and second century BC, the high priesthood was for sale to the highest bidder. <laughs> right? It was, and so they were so mortified and horrified. And Rome appointed the priests. Rome appointed the high priest. It's like what, what, what China has tried to do by appointing a Dalai Lama, you know? It's like right. they have no business doing so that. The Essenes, said, the Essenes said, We want nothing to do with this. We're going to preserve our ritual purity out here in the wilderness until such a time comes when we can bring the real deal back to Jerusalem. Um, that's a good description of the Essenes. Listen, uh, I, we have five minutes, and I want to say something else, uh, to, which is that... Um, but just to wrap that oh, up, that's, like that's, that. where, that's where baptism enters the Christian tradition from. You said, where did baptism come from? Jesus, we're told, the earliest gospel, Mark, yeah, this is important. It, it begins with Jesus going to Yohanan the Dipper, Yohanan the Bikkunan. <laughs> Jesus goes to him and is baptized by him. So we see Jesus actually beginning his ministry um, in some kind of apprenticeship relationship to John. Um, so it's thought by some scholars perhaps Jesus apprenticed himself to John before he ultimately broke with that movement and modeled a different way. Um, Different John. Different John. No, John the Baptist. Oh, not, John, not John the Gospel, right, but John the Baptist. So, so that practice was a practice that was part of this 
you know, experimentation in first century Judaism that then comes into Christianity and is given a new meaning. Um, and we can look at what that... So what I was trying to ask was, so when did that become, like, how you were your Christian, if you have that? When did baptism right. become so the ritual? It beca like right. Kind of it like becomes the ritual of initiation into the Jesus <clears throat> movement, baptism. But it's not, it's not that from the get-go. It actually is... Let's hold on to that. But there's a period, a murky period, where what the relationship to baptism is and what it means <clears throat> is kind of up for grabs. But it eventually, in these intervening centuries, it becomes understood as the initiatory ritual into the tradition. In the way, um, if you were going to convert to Judaism and you were male, you would need to be circumcised to enter. No, no, no. If you convert to Judaism, male or female, you have to be ritually immersed. Ritually immersed. So, oh, well, that's the Judaism, same thing. Judaism, <laughs> Judaism has the same practice. To become a Jew, if you are a Gentile, you have to immerse in the ritual bath. We don't call it baptism. Right. We call it mikvah. Because you didn't use the Greek word. Uh, right, we use the Hebrew word. But so again, this is not the defining characteristic of when Christianity becomes and Judaism. We both were doing this practice. It was understood in ancient in Judaism of this time as a ritual of rebirth and renewal. So you are born again, right? You come out of the the the, the waters of the great womb and are born again into a new identity. It's, it's Christian and it's Jewish. And this is a, a, a phrase from John's Gospel where Jesus says, and again, this isn't probably the historical Jesus speaking in John's Gospel, but he uses the language of being born of water and spirit. You must be born again of water and spirit. It's again about that renewal process. You know, it's not the way it's used in evangelical circles today about you got to be born again. It was this this whole ritual of renewal. Mm -hmm. But you had a, a summary well, you were well, trying so, to get to. But Gary and Steve are eager to say just, something. Just a real quick question. Yeah. I want one more bite of the apple here. Just as most, if not many, or all Jewish scholars now don't believe that the earth was necessarily created in six days, but that this is a gigantic metaphor about right. the human condition. I'm asking you from the beginning, were there I wasn't there, so I'm just going to be guessing. <laughs> Do the scholars think that there were thinkers who thought that this Jesus guy has something interesting to share? So you know what we're going to do? We're going to draw upon the traditions of resurrection and this and that. We're going to create an image of him that we don't necessarily think necessarily was historically true, but his lessons are so vital to be conveyed that we need to create this myth around him. I don't think it was so self-conscious. Yeah, it's a, it's a natural I, I don't think evolution. it's so Think about... Think about some, uh, a great person dies. Then once living memory is gone, the legends start to arise. Organically. Organically. Often not very self-consciously. This is the, I would choose, and I don't mean this in any pejorative way, this is the folk process. This is what, this is how the story gets told. And, and it gets told, and then it gets told, and it gets told. And we're going to look at those texts. We'll look, as we move through the text, at a birth narrative, and how it's playing midrashically with the story of Moses' birth narrative, you know, where we'll look at a resurrection narrative and compare it. So we will do those things. Yeah, and right. they're using the modalities of the metaphors and legends of... But the really interesting thing to me is today in the 21st century, I, century, are there Christian theologians who have to play a game, and forgive me for asking this question, that they accept a folk myth 
in order to be accepted within the community. Uh, when they believe in the lessons but not the folks. Hold that. We'll talk about that. Steve? Mine's not that deep. But maybe you can address it next time. Uh, isn't there an apocalyptic thread here, too? Yes. Yeah. With John the Baptist and... Yes, so that is something we certainly have to turn our attention to eventually is, was Jesus apocalyptic? Did he expect an imminent end of the world? Was he not? Um, that's something we'll come to. And the other gospel text we'll look at that's very relevant to that question is a gospel called the Gospel of Thomas, um, which I didn't put up here, but it's sometimes called the fifth gospel, which is a collection of sayings of Jesus um, from the early headwaters of the tradition that was rediscovered in the 40s. And it's one of our other threads that gives some insight into Friends. that around eschatology. Friends, but, it's, it's yeah. 2 o'clock, so I have to wrap up. Wrap up. What, what, I have to wrap up. Language, I have to wrap up. What language was the Gospel of Thomas written in? Well, the, the, can we talk about that another, next time? That's for another day. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. talk about that another time, too, with apologies. Um, but, but it, it would have been Greek. <laughs> so, I want to cite, to close this first session, I want to cycle back to um, uh, what Matthew began with, which is that all of this, all of this um, theorizing and uh, um, uh, uh, descriptions of what the Gospels are, how they're constructed, when they were composed, all of that is the product of the last 100, 150 years of modern scholarship. Right? So, again, if we're going to, and it's important to me, to name our biases, right? and I don't mean that with a capital B, What's our, what frame of reference are we coming from? Um, before the advent of this critical scholarship, we didn't have this option of having a historical dialogue. Right? It was this book or this book. We could have a disputation. We could, but this is all very much, and I'm grateful for it, the product of modernity. The idea that history, uh, that we can uh, study history, that we can begin to piece it together, that we can understand things chronologically, that we can put things in their historical context, not have everything just be an anachronism, right? That we can do all that stuff. So I understand that that for anyone who, for whom um, religion is a, a divine, divinely revealed word or fundamentalist in that sense, I can't have this dialogue, right? But, and then, the, and, and, and this will get back to what Gary was raising, so are we just telling stories? Then where, what, what, you know, what? Um, uh, and the truth is, as far as I'm concerned, yes, we are just telling stories. But are they good stories? <laughs> Are they life-giving, yeah. meaningful stories? Because that's what our cultural and religious traditions are based on. That is, that is my bias. Right? My bias is, is that they are not divinely, divinely ordained, infallible, or revealed in that sense, but they are the product of historical circumstance of human beings striving to understand what it means to be a good person in the world and what we're here to do. And so I'm grateful I'm grateful for modernity in that sense that allows us to make this investigation by allowing us to honor the possibility of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. The danger of that always is smugness and arrogance, mm -hmm. right? What do we know about the first century? It's like I talked about connecting the dots. We just have dots, right? And then we do our best 
using our, our, our intelligence and our hearts to create plausible and reasonable reconstructions of what that might have been. And that's what we're doing. But uh, so that uh, 50 years from now, there might be a different scholarly consensus about this. But for me, the, the, the joy of this and the, also the value of it is that even if, even if this, this analysis turns out to be flawed in some way that we understand better later, we are working it, right? We're yeah. trying, we want to figure out what our tradition has to teach us, and we want to do it in the context of modernity, which is the context that says there is no singular and exclusive expression of truth, oh, right? Amen. So that allows for, for, for us to do all this, and so, but or there is a singular truth that expresses itself in many ways. There's a singular. All right, but as, no, no, no. Matthew and I both, as people of faith, think there is a singular truth that expresses itself in countless ways. That's a much better way of saying it. One Uh huh. So, um, uh, I hope uh, uh, I thank you for coming. Let's close it off now, and we'll see you next week.